you know, something silly or or something. Is it just too early? Is it that like we're not not prepared for a cold open because we're just like kind of groggy? Because mm-hmm. I've. I got to be honest, since we started doing the earlier time, uh, the earlier time slot for recording, uh, I really have to like push myself into recording and then I do get a, I do get a flow at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unsurprising, I guess, but I have a lot less on my mind at 10 a.m. on a Saturday <laughs> than I do at uh, at 5 p.m. on a Monday afternoon. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's because that's when we normally recorded. Yeah, if I were gonna like try to pull something, you know, riff on something or whatever, it would probably just come out really angry at my cat for waking <laughs> me up several times. Like I know I normally wake up early, uh, but so it's not a, it wasn't a problem to come do this. But uh, my cat started scratching at woke me up at two a.m. to get into the bedroom. And then I had to wake up at four to use the bathroom. And then he woke me up at five to get out, scratching at the door. And so I put him out. And then he woke me up at 530, scratching to get back in. And then I put him in the mudroom. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a needy cat. I, I hope he found his peace in the mudroom. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he was okay for a little. He, he likes being in there. It was just maybe he's got like a, a little cat cave that he can go into so he, he wouldn't freeze or anything. But I, I hope mm. he, he was just a little bit cold. Nice. Yeah, I, <laughs> just I, like a mini punishment for the kitty for being, waking you up four or five times. I was so worried about this cat in our neighborhood that it started coming around to my back door, uh, which is just like a glass sliding door. And she would like paw at it and I'd feed her and she's like really friendly and I'd pet her and pick like, you know, stuff from the woods out of her fur and stuff. And I got really worried because it was getting cold. So I posted the, the, the Bloomingdale Now group. I was like, hey, does anybody around here uh, know who this cat is? Like, what's the deal? I'll, I'll take the cat in once it starts getting cold. And some lady was like, that's Stevie. She has a heated outdoor catio. She's perfectly fine. <laughs> and I was like, heated outdoor catio? In what? This cat's living better than I do. <laughs> Damn, that is, lu- that is luxury for an outdoor cat. Yeah, our cats, our stray cats in this neighborhood, they don't have uh that stuff that i'm aware of they do have like people who who will feed them and everything mm-hmm. but they they use the buddy system so mm-hmm. there's the cats are always like kind of hanging out there's like two or three of them that always kind of stick together and cuddle up it's pretty cute that's nice <laughs> that's nice i actually we've got a couple of feral cats i kind of live out in the woods and so and i just recently moved here and the there being a couple of feral cats is like but they're very skittish they're they're woods cats they're they're just out here to eat frogs and mice Hell yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about feral cats. Uh... Your favorite neighborhood animals podcast. My name is John. I'm Lena. And instead of Dan this week, because he's busy with another bout of responsibilities, we are very lucky to be joined by Alexander Edward from Minion Death Cult. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I'm a 17-year Teamster, UPS driver, uh, but more importantly, a podcaster. And uh, (laughs) yeah, thank you so much for having me on here. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Always happy to extend solidarity to our fellow podcasters. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you do support us on Patreon. It really does mean a lot. Uh, you can hop in the Discord if you want to hang out uh, and learn a little bit more about what we talk about on the show. If you're a patron who needs stickers, just message us on Patreon and I'll get them to you. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Uh, And so just to get right into the news today, we are going to do a small follow-up on episode 178. We talked about the pharmacy walkouts uh, at CVS and Walgreens. And we learned from the follow-ups just uh, a couple days ago that there were about 25 locations that participated in sickouts during that that, uh, walkout series. And then we also talked about how between October 30th and November 1st, there were going to be additional walkouts. And I mean, since obviously it's past that, we have a little bit of news. Apparently, they were able to shut down three pharmacies. Uh, and then the Walgreens put out some press release, be, or maybe it was CVS. Actually, I didn't put that in the notes. Uh, put, put out a press release saying that, oh, the sickouts had minimal impact, which is obviously just, uh, you know, them talking to their donors, being mm-hmm. like, uh, don't worry, our uh, the labor is not discontent, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is inter- cool. This is, sorry. Uh, this, this is an action that reached my ears just through the grapevine. I just heard about this from I, one of my daily pickups is a CVS and I can't remember if I heard it there, but I, I heard about like people complaining about pharmacists going on strike or, or mentioning it in, in the offhand. So that's, that's pretty cool. It did, it, it, it didn't sound very negative. It was just like, ah, this is reality. You know, they're getting ready to strike or walk mm-hmm. out. And so it's always cool to hear that stuff out of context from like, you know, online left circles or labor circles. Yeah, yeah. definitely. This is also one I heard about as well, because my dad was like, hey, did you hear, you know, you better go get any medicines you're going to need because they're going to walk out and you won't be able to get your medicines. And I'm like, it's already so hard to get medicine right now with the number of staff they put in these fucking CVSs. Like, I hope they walk out. Uh (laughs) Sounds great to me, man. (laughs) Well, and they were saying in some of the reporting on this that they are, it takes, they're like a week or more behind. I mean, in some places, Mm -hmm. like overall, they're, they're like weeks behind amongst all of their facilities. And this is, and I mean, Clearly, they are, uh, you know, talking about how the workers are are walking out, but are they actually doing anything about it? Uh, So far, I haven't really heard anything. And I mean, just the fact that they shut down some pharmacies shows that this is a bigger action than what happened last time. We didn't have a count of how many locations actually participated in the sick outs, but I'm guessing that was more this time than the first time it happened. Yeah, it must have been. I mean, to, to see the amount of press coverage that this got um, compared to the level of impact that the company is saying that it had on them is, is a really big disconnect. And in the experience that I've had just doing this show, stuff like this is usually a pretty good indicator that there's going to be a, a continue continued ramping up of of militant labor organizing within this sector yeah now, i'm hoping so at least are these these uh employees aren't organized otherwise correct there are uh C- I, we reported last time that there's a, some cvs workers in uh chicago that are with the teamsters and that there is tech there's like a pharmacist union but i couldn't figure out like what they what was covered by them um, there are SEIU pharmacists that are generally like in hospitals, right. and I think that there's like stop and shop. I think someone in the Discord said there's stop and shop pharmacists that are, mm. um, I think, in UFCW. 
Um, I actually, I really should have kept that note in. <laughs> well, it's but, interesting though that they're bringing that they're doing this kind of action then across so many different mo- modes of organizing and groups who may or may not be organized because that kind of like industrial or like sector wide or even just employer wide kind of activity is becoming a lot more popular just over mm-hmm. the last few years and it, uh, probably because it's highly effective. Yeah, yeah, people are people are getting it in like the the their mental frameworks that mm-hmm. that they can do this even if they don't have a union. You know, they're they're no they're noticing. <laughs> you know, they're they're noticing uh that this is pot we just talked about um it was in Ohio there was this restaurateur who put a anti-abortion sign out front of his restaurant and the employees had a big problem with that and they walked out and they shut down the restaurant and it was, you know, there's no union there. There's no like other organizing there to my knowledge. They just realized, Hey, we can actually have a material effect on this guy's paycheck and this guy's ability to promote this bullshit. And they did Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, hell yeah. And I mean, forming those those like quick unions is like becoming more popular because of the like nature of organizing going on. It it does kind of resemble some of the really early trade union organizing that was going on, especially here in the United States, where unions would kind of pop up and have an issue, fight it, and then kind of fall out of existence a, a little bit. And then, you know, as the NLRB comes into existence, there's more of a, a solidified union movement, but I, I definitely see more of that that um, grassroots militant uh, nature activism in like the workplace lately. But but I mean, speaking of that sort of thing, we should move to our, our next quick follow up with the University of California grad workers who we had reported on a, quite a while ago who got charged with felony vandalism for drawing chalk sl- chalk like slogans on campus. Uh, apparently they, uh, that was obviously, as we pointed out at the time, bullshit that they were charged with anything. And, uh, all of those charges have now been dropped, which Mm -hmm. to me shows that this was simply just a form of intimidation Mm -hmm. and like trying to tie these, this union up with like legal bullshit in order to try to union bust them. I mean, it fascinates me in this case that the charges were even let through because I think shortly after this case, we reported on uh, a university in the Northeast somewhere that had a a protest or or a labor action as well. And they also drew slogans in chalk. And I believe the university like briefly attempted to file these kind of charges against them, but kind of abandoned it pretty quickly. So it's kind of interesting that the University of California tried this. They got basically nowhere with it. They, another university tried another time and got even less far. And then we just really haven't seen this kind of tactic used again since. So it makes perfect sense that the charges have just been thrown out. Although I'm sure that there, it's going to happen again because until there's like a, a legal precedent, and even then, like legal precedent, as we know, doesn't always make much of a difference because mm-hmm. like companies will just break the law and and i mean not to i mean i guess the university of california is remit is like what do you what if dan says the it's just a, a real estate like a uh, company <laughs> yeah. that happens basically. to provide classes yeah yeah so yeah that's uh, why i didn't go there <laughs> uh, uh yeah uh, it's you know um with this obvious like a t- intimidation tactic i'm expecting uh the intellectual dark web to come out any day now and call this uh for what it is lawfare yeah <laughs> oh 
I mean, that's that's almost certainly what it is, and that's what's all, it's so often used as a, as a tactic against unions. Uh, and in fact, we're going to see more of that uh, a little bit later when we talk about one of our stories later. Uh, but to continue with our follow-ups, we do. Well, need I'm just to- uh, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just looking at the the slogans they were writing. Things like "Living Wage Now," and I mean, mm-hmm. if we agree that it's not illegal, we can at least agree that this is like supportive of Hamas, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. When will the University of California ask its student organizers to denounce Hamas? That <laughs> Hezbollah, of course. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, honestly, I I'm sure that that actually is an g- ongoing issue because it has been mm-hmm. on so many campuses where people are correctly standing with Palestine and the Zionists decide that, you know, they want to repress any sort of speech that is against genocide. But yeah, we mean, actually we, do have we, a story we, we, coming up about that. We talked about it last week and in relevant to Starbucks as well. But before we get too mired up in all the details about how everything is exactly the same <laughs> in the way that uh, bosses treat their workers, we do want to follow up with uh, our really big culinary union story that we talked about last month when we discussed the nearly unanimous vote to authorize a strike by nearly 40,000 members of the culinary union in Las Vegas after oh, yeah. their contracts with major casinos expired. And for the past several weeks, these servers, cooks, bartenders, and other hospitality workers on the Strip in Vegas have held protests and informational pickets demanding the casinos agree to a fair contract. This week, they announced a deadline, Friday, November 10th. If no new deal is reached by then, the workers will shut down the Strip. And contracts expired earlier this year at 18 different casinos. And while tourism has rebounded since the worst days of the pandemic, which of course is still ongoing, just listen to my voice, the bosses have refused to agree to fair wage increases. Due to the soaring cost of living around the country, the union is fighting for, quote-unquote, the largest wage increases ever negotiated. And meanwhile, the casinos have dragged their feet, apparently believing that the union would only threaten a strike and not actually walk out. But now they are faced with a hard deadline. And I really like this tactic because it's kind of an echo of what we saw with the UAW stand-up strike, which is, I think, you know, not that setting a, a strike deadline or anything is any kind of new organizing tactic, but it's just that, like, I think we're seeing a general trend of unions taking the ball in their court and saying, like, you know what? Fuck it. November 10th. If you don't play good, if you don't play nice by then then we're going to play hardball. And that's just how it is. And I think that's really highly effective. Yeah. And I mean, we do have to remember that this is set just like one week before the upcoming Formula One race that's happening in Las Vegas, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which apparently is a big deal. I'm not much of a race car person, but that's going to that's on Sunday, November 19th. So, you know, just just not too far after that November 10th date that they have set. And that's expected to bring an enormous amount of tourists and spectators to the city, even should the casinos try to, you know, run with scabs, replacing 35,000 plus experienced workers is basically impossible, no matter how much every single company is like, no, we could run on scabs. (laughs) Yeah, nonsense. We, um... With our negotiations with UPS Teamsters, uh, we we did the same thing. We set uh, a deadline uh, for the end end of the month, uh, July thirty first of yeah this this year I believe was the deadline, and um, that that forced UPS to uh, give us a good tentative agreement, and mm-hmm. we uh, we averted the strike. And you know I have uh, complex feelings about that, uh, which yeah you can go back and listen to our coverage of. Uh, those, you know, leading up those negotiations and leading up to that. Um, but yeah, even if you don't actually strike, it's a, it's a, it can be a very effective tactic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and they, they've also like flexed their organizational muscle in the culinary union quite a bit leading up to this and, and like showing that they're serious by, by being serious about the way they're structuring their organizing. And you guys did something very similar with the Teamsters uh, with the practice pickets, which were mm-hmm. unbelievably effective. Yeah, that was great. I mean, because, you know, we haven't seen a strike since the 90s, you know, and so that's before most people were, wor- uh, you know, currently were working at UPS, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, alive, born. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was great. It was, a, it was a great opportunity for people to not have to feel stupid for asking questions or, uh, uh unsure of, you know, protocol. I mean, it's, it's always good to have, it, it also just like demonstrates seriousness from leadership that mm-hmm. like, you know, cause it's hard to strike without practicing or without knowing how a strikes a strike works. So the fact that the union was trying to teach us these things was like, I don't know, a positive sign for the, the militancy of the union. I, I definitely agree with it's one of the, uh, I believe the word for it is like a structure test to see like how much you can actually mobilize people in like those times coming up to when you know that you have to mobilize mm-hmm. everyone. Because if you see some holes in that, obviously, then you can sit, figure out like where there is that, you know, maybe lack of education or, or maybe where people are more resident and, and you can kind of address those issues before they are. You're like suddenly in the moment and panicking because you can't get things together. Right. Well, we'll see over the next week exactly uh, how much leverage the union is able to squeeze out of this upcoming Formula One race and and just the kind of measures that they take to make sure that they're mobilized in time for a possible strike action. So really exciting and definitely something worth keeping an eye on. I'm certain we'll be talking about it again next week, regardless of the outcome. Yeah. Uh, now, something that we have been talking about, you know, consistently uh, also, I mean, as we were kind of just talking about, is the ongoing, you know, genocide in Palestine. And we just can't not talk about it. It's, it's super important. And I mean, honestly, if you're uh, this is another appeal to people join the discord our uh, one of our channels in the discord has like basically like almost like tons and tons of updates on what's going on there. So uh, and one of the things that we've done here is we've really encouraged labor to stand up and refuse to be complicit in the horrific violence that Israel is enacting on Palestine. And uh, Palestinian labor labor organizations have called upon workers around the world to refuse to manufacture or ship weapons to Israel and to condemn the ongoing atrocities. This week, workers in Canada came together to fight to do just that. On Monday, October 30th, about 100 workers in Toronto with Labor Against Arms Trade, the Najwan Support Network, and the World Beyond War held a protest picket at the headquarters of the Canadian war profiteer Incas, I-N-K-A-S, mm-hmm. which manufactures armored vehicles supplied to the Israeli occupation forces. Approximately 50 workers blocked entrances at Incas HQ with banners reading, Incas, you've got blood on your hands, and arms embargo on Israel now. World Beyond War, one of the protest groups, pointed out that Canadian war profiteers like Incas sent over $20 million in weapons and military equipment to the occupation forces last year, including over $3 million in bombs and missiles. Labor Against the Arms Trade organizer Simon Black said, quote, We're here to say to Canada, stop arming Israel, end the siege in Gaza, cease fire now, end the complicity in Israel, apartheid, and occupation. Unions in Canada have repeatedly called for for an arms embargo on Israel, end quote. 
Hell yeah. I mean, this is so important. And like those numbers are really shocking. $20 million in weapons and military equipment, including 3 million in bombs and missiles. And then it's even more shocking when you realize that like that's from last year. So that's just like what this company would normally send to the IDF, you know, as a matter of course, not like in the face of the ongoing conflict, you know, the ongoing genocide that's been ramped up that everybody's talking about now this year. Right. Their shareholders must be like hiding visible erections. At, right. At, yeah. At this on at this slaughter going on over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about the Najuan support network before because we had covered when they uh, helped defend migrant workers from wage theft and other abuses, and basically organized a bunch of workers to get like wages that were unpaid from a company that went bankrupt that was basically refusing to pay workers what was it almost almost a year or at least six months worth of back wages yeah a lot of them it was over nine months worth of back wages Wow. yeah and i mean so obviously the najuan support network is a pretty badass organization there in canada and they issued a statement condemning canada's government's refusal to stop arming israel and calling workers to action Quote, the Canadian government and companies like Incas do not feel shame. They will not condemn Israel. They will not stop sending weapons to Israel on their own. They have to be forced to stop. We have Mm -hmm. to stop them. Our approach is to directly confront the people who exploit us. We are proud to take the same kind of action against companies that are profiting from the slaughter of Palestinians. Today it is Incas. Tomorrow it will be another company. We will stand against them all until Palestine is free. End quote. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, the the workers in terms of what they physically did to accomplish this is they blocked the entrances to the facility, including blocking the trucks and management employees who were trying to access the grounds. Several pro-Zionist employees actually assaulted workers on the picket line and rammed the crowd with their car, a tactic that we've seen disturbingly too much on this show, with no response at all from the police, totally unsurprisingly. Instead of dealing with the actual violence, of course, the Toronto police arrested instead five of the picketers for trespassing. All of the groups involved in the protest vowed to continue their fight to stop the flow of weapons to the genocidal Zionist regime. And these are exactly the sorts of actions that we've heard from workers in Palestine asking to see in the rest of the world. So this coming week, there's going to be opportunities, uh, further opportunities for workers everywhere to take action against the complicity of our governments in the ongoing attacks on Palestine. So on Thursday, November 9th, there will be a national day of action, shut it down for Palestine across the United States. And we also see organizations like the Party for Socialism and Liberation and the Palestinian Youth Movement, who have called on everyone to take part and show the ruling class that workers are not with them, and that the vast majority of people in society don't accept complicity in these atrocities. So the things that workers are encouraged to do include uh, walking out from worker school, picketing Israeli embassies and consulates, uh, picketing against war profiteers like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Elbit Systems, and all other companies that profit from the occupation, which there's a lot of good infographics about it. It's a lot of companies. And also to host local speakouts. So for relatively you know, easy things that you can do to get out there and just show the, the, the popular will about this conflict is not at all in line with what you know the u.s government or any other bourgeois government has been doing um because we don't have a a representative democracy and uh they're not going to get it unless we tell them 
Yeah, that, again, that's that's Thursday, November 9th, so that's this mm-hmm. week. You still have a, some time to organize your coworkers or, you know, spread that sort of news to people that you know are in school. Uh, I mean, it's really important that we actually, you know, make this action go go wide on this mm-hmm. one. And so, I mean, workers are encouraged to organize local actions and affiliate them with the movement to show, like, true nationwide support for workers uh, in Palestine. As an example, in Providence, there will be a protest picket at the headquarters of Textron, a major war profiteer, which provides millions of dollars in weapons to the occupation every year. Um, I'm almost certain that this note is from Dan, uh, because it is from Providence, Rhode Island. (laughs) But uh, we encourage listeners to check out uh, www.shutitdown4, the number four, palestine.org for resources and to find or register an action in your area. I will also include this uh, shut it down number four palestine.org in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you guys are aware of uh, that action that happened yesterday in the Bay area, Mm -hmm. uh, preventing that ship with, I believe uh, weapons materials headed for Israel. They were able to stop it, uh, at least temporarily. I, I, I didn't see how that played out, but um, that was really inspiring. Yeah, I believe that uh, the ship did get rerouted up to Washington, where I believe that there were they were planning additional actions up there. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't, I don't actually think that we we don't have that particular story in the notes, but we will certainly have the updates on it next week. Yeah, well, and. You know, this is one of those issues that as long as this conflict is ongoing and the United States is supporting Israel in this way, it's just going to be a constant battle. You know, I I think a lot of people get the idea that like you do a big enough action and you get to just kind of be done. But if we've learned anything from the folks who are trying to stop the, you know, Dakota Access Pipeline or the folks who are trying to stop Cop City or the folks who do, you know, labor movements or, or other kinds of protests against various types of like war and imperialism, it's that these are if you want these uh, actions to be effective they need to snowball and so it's like really really encouraging to see the level of support and and the the level of mobilization that has already been achieved to prevent weapons from heading to palestine to to into the hands of israeli forces and so i can only hope uh that that we will continue to see this and, and that it will only get bigger honestly well, I- and I think that one of the actions that we're going to see, which is probably going to be the biggest one yet, is the one that's actually starting right around now while we're recording on the 4th mm-hmm. over in D.C., where, you know, the there's just a bunch of organizations, um, you know, the Answer Coalition and uh, the Palestinian Youth Movement and, and a bunch of other orgs are, are uh, walking down to the Capitol to demand an end to any sort of support to Israel and uh, and also a ceasefire immediately. Yeah, well, I really hope that, you know, as long as we stay mobilized, uh, labor can be a big part of that victory. And I think, you know, we're going to need to be if we want to see an end to the genocide uh, that Israel is committing right now. But if we want to talk about victories by uh, labor organizations, let's talk a little bit about the RMT, who um, swiftly kicked the, well, not swiftly, it took quite a while because the Tories are famously incredibly intransigent, but the RMT did uh, defeat Tory plans to shut her ticket office and slash thousands of jobs across the UK. So it's been about 
a year. It's been more than a year since the fight by rail workers in the UK to save their jobs from austerity cuts and privatization plans by the Tory government began. And this week we saw that victory I was talking about when the government finally abandoned its plan to close all railway station ticket offices and replace them with kiosks. The proposed plan would have shuttered over a thousand ticket offices and slashed vital jobs. Of course, rallied by the RMT and other unions, we saw over 750,000 people send in comments to demand the government keep the ticket offices open. The flood of anger from the public at the attempt to cut thousands of jobs and make the rail system more difficult for people to use, particularly disabled folks, has now officially forced the government to withdraw their plan. And I got to say, this is a huge victory uh, for for a lot of people, but especially for me, someone who doesn't (laughs) even use the UK rail system, because I no longer have to have my Twitter feed be 25% save our ticket offices posts, which were totally warranted and absolutely justified, but clogged up my feed really bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I mean, they said you know, the, the issue with it being for disabled folks is really important because, you know, the inaccessibility of the, the digital uh, systems for taking tickets, it's really good to have someone there to actually talk to. Mm-hmm. That also is a big deal for like elders. I mean, literally shutting down these ticket booths would be elder abuse. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, they, they're so often these, you know, I don't want to, I, I almost want to tell a joke, these newfangled machines or whatever, you know, they are difficult for people mm-hmm. who are not familiar with the technology. And so there should not be any reason to cut these jobs there isn't a reason to cut these jobs and i mean clearly uh the people supported it and won well and it's also like digital versions of pub like public or private services are just famously shitty and impossible to use like i hit a deer with my car recently and i tried to file the police report online their website was fucking busted so i had to call i tried to file the insurance claim online their app was fucking busted so i had to call i when the guy came to tow my car i tried to use their online app it was busted and the guy had to call me on my phone and then i tried to take the busted car off my insurance and the app wouldn't let me do it and i had to call a person this is yeah. this is so sad can we please get ai control of all these apps sh- <laughs> it's going to make it 100 percent better yeah we uh, want the newer the even newer technology <laughs> yeah the, the more the more volatile f- one fewer people involved um, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, with the elder abuse thing and ticket offices, I mean, aside from yeah, the the user interfaces and you know the the whatever te- technological uh, unproficiency of the elderly. Plus, they just they just need somebody to talk to. Just let them talk mm-hmm. talk to somebody. You know, hell yeah, have somebody in the booth. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of funny that like even outside of the profit motive explanation for it, CEOs and like business industry leaders' idea of like the perfect business setup is no employees, <laughs> all customers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch called the Tory retreat a resounding victory for the British people and called on the government to work with the unions and the public to guarantee quote the future of our ticket offices and station staff jobs to deliver a safe, secure, and accessible service that puts passengers before profit, end quote. And I actually, one of the things in there is uh, safety and security along with the accessibility, because we've been talking about accessibility, but when the ticket offices are open later, it also makes the the station safer, especially for people who are Mm -hmm. often subject to violence. So it's also a safety issue on top of the 
accessibility issue for sure. Yeah, I've I've never uh, ridden the L London Transit, the Tube, if that's if that's what the, this is. But I have been to New York City once and did ride the subway. So I feel like I'm in solidarity with these people. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and so in our next story, we're going to be talking about teachers in Portland. And we've said many times that teachers have been one of the professions like most willing to strike for justice in like the broader community in the United States, mm. specifically because of their deeply connected roots in community. And mm. this week, teachers in Portland joined that fight. On Wednesday, November 1st, the Portland Association of Teachers launched its first ever citywide strike across 80 different schools. That's wow. huge. I'm yeah. like... We've covered like, oh, yeah, this school's on strike or this small district is on strike. Mm -hmm. But this whole city, 80 yeah. different schools is on strike. I mean, this is this is like some stuff that you would expect from like a particularly radical teachers union. Like that's always in the news, like the CTU or something. But like, you know, no shade to Portland. It's just like we don't hear that much about them. So they must have been like working quietly in the shadows getting everything together for this big action which is pretty badass yeah and i mean the the portland association of teachers represents about four thousand teachers counselors and other workers across the school district and have been in negotiations for a new contract for months like so many of the nursing and healthcare workers strikes that we've covered the core demands of the teachers are fighting for not just gains for themselves but for their students Classic. Mm -hmm. Speaking with Oregon Public Broadcasting, third grade teacher Tiffany Koyama Lane said, quote, we are asking for more planning time so that we can serve our students better. We are asking for mice-free and mold-free buildings. We are still a mold podcast. Mm -hmm. We are asking for reasonable temperatures in our classrooms so no colder than 60 degrees or no hotter than 90 degrees. End quote. Incredibly unreasonable demands, right? Yeah, I mean, that's stuff that's going to be pretty important going forward, too, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as the climate continues to get significantly shittier. But it's also like they're giving you a 30 degree range. In what universe is it ever acceptable to have the interior of a school at 55 degrees or 95 degrees? Like, you can't reasonably expect teachers to perform their job. You can't expect students to focus on anything. I mean, it really just gives away the game that like... You know, our schools are being run as anything but like weird little daycare businesses. And like the the emphasis is clearly not on anybody's like retention of information here. And and also the the idea that there are just mice running around the school. Like I know we're a mold podcast, but like mold happens in buildings and you need to be proactive about it. Mice is not a normal problem. There should never be mice in the building. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I still want to go back to that heat issue. Now hotter than 90 degrees, that's literally life-threatening heat. Like, See, I, I, I don't know. I kind of got to push back on this because I recently watched a movie about a teacher who, uh, despite uh, being sweaty and hot, uh, was able to still teach his underserved community. I think the, uh, all you just distribute like an orange to each teacher <laughs> yep. uh, and then like, you know, an A shirt that they can put on under their button up shirt uh, and we'll be fine. I think that's yeah. all you should be asking for. Start right. giving them the, the freezer pops that you give to high low drivers <laughs> when it's 120 degrees in the warehouse. 
Oh, oh my god. god. Well, and I'm, yeah, but I mean, to 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 be real, I mean, like there are students with all sorts of different situations going on. Not to not not to talk just about teachers, where you know there can be disabled teachers, there could be differently you know needed people in that regard. But the children themselves, you know, you children have all sorts of different shit going on. Mm-hmm. They're kids. Like they shouldn't be in a building that is. I. I mean, I. I think that ninety is honestly too generous. Oh, sure. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and it's. Uh, I think you nailed it, Lena, when you said that. Like these teachers that are on the forefront of community, and that means you know they're they're teaching these children. They're they're like, and in a way, raising the next generation of children. And so, yeah, every all the you know, the the havoc in the world right now and the adverse conditions in the world um, are reflected in this new generation of children. They've all been subjected to that, these these conditions since birth. Um, so yeah, the deteriorating conditions of the world make the teacher's jobs harder because they have to uh, con- confront, you know, the way it's affecting their students. And, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously we should be trying to prepare the next generation and you know uh what do you what do you call it like support them as as much as possible because not only are they like a bellwether of how things are going but they're also like the the harbingers of the future you know and i'm and i realize these are like cliche things to say but they're they're so true exactly i mean they're cliches for a reason and i mean like people like when it comes to this sort of thing it is genuinely important and people shouldn't be tired of hearing about it i mean these issues of safe clean facilities for students smaller class sizes for each student so that each can get the individual attention they need and sufficient time for teachers to be able to do their jobs would basically seem like base level assumptions for any competently run school district but i mean the portland administration has called these demands quote not financially possible oh Mm. cool i love it when uh there's a lack of financial viability in a fucking (laughs) school system that's really fucking great because everyone knows the point of a school is to make money um like (laughs) just to give some figures the administrators have claimed that if they if they step up and meet the teacher's demands and provide safe classrooms and sufficient staff that that's going to put them out to the tune of 277 million dollars which they are framing as saying okay if the city gives us 277 million dollars to do this then they have to cut a bunch of the budget in in a bunch of other places which one is not true you can raise taxes that's an easy way to get money it's the main way city governments get money is my understanding the other thing you could do is stop giving so much fucking money to the police for two seconds i'm pretty sure that would more than cover it uh, yeah but who's also... gonna give the proud boys directions when they come into town <laughs> <laughs> yeah damn they're very true this is a city of uh six people uh mm-hmm. i don't think that it's like a crazy ask to you know i mean and also there i'm sure there's plenty of rich people in there that you could just like take a bunch of their money the the idea that there isn't money there is just simply a lie yeah it's a lie well and like i I just out of curiosity i googled the portland police budget 226 million dollars so that right there solves 90 percent of your problem (laughs) (laughs) exactly you know i'm i'm like 
I'm I'm not sympathetic to the argument that it's expensive, but I I understand it. Like this mm-hmm. is a conversation you're going to have to have with people if you're arguing for better school systems. People are going to say, "What about the money?" You know, the finger thing means the taxes. Um, and my response to that is, well, we should, you know what we should do? We should give schools more money every year on an incremental basis. So we don't have to wait until they're literally falling apart to dump a uh, hundred million, $200 million in there to fucking get the mold out of there. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. they, if, if administrations, if the city didn't fight tooth and nail to prevent more money to going into schools every single, you know, fiscal year then we wouldn't we wouldn't be short by 277 million dollars. Absolutely. I like I, it makes me want to like flip my chair around backwards and sit down with the 65 or whatever year old head of the school district and be like, "Listen, Jack, if you if if you go and you get a regular oil change, it is a, it's a it's a periodic expense, but it's a lot cheaper than your engine seizing up on the highway. <laughs> well, and I mean, like, what you're just basically proposing what the opposite of what has been going on is compared to like cops, where cops get that incremental increase every single year, uh, just constantly, and schools consistently get cut. Uh, mm-hmm. Why don't we uh, shift that around and uh, cut the police and fund the schools but i mean obviously that's a, that's a pretty clear point on you know on our side of the argument every single right. time well and we heard from the union when they told oregon public broadcasting that the administration refused to make any movement at all on cost of living adjustments which has been another understandably hot button issue in u.s labor recently and has also totally rejected even the possibility of bargaining over such critical issues as class sizes and student mental health support we heard from renard adams who is a member of the administration's bargaining team who told reporters quote we understand we have significant disagreements on critical issues we can only bridge these and reach agreement through dialogue cooperation and compromise Wrong. and an acknowledgement that we do not have the resources to cover their proposals end <laughs> quote i love that yeah we uh we understand we have significant agreements we can only bridge these divides by you agreeing with us <laughs> exactly that's exactly what they're saying it, it's it's uh clearly just pr speak uh, and I mean, the district has a, gr- I mean, and even just to kind of to go against what, how, you know, nicely they said that the district has aggressively attacked the teachers for daring to strike as reported in labor notes after a 90, after 99% of the workers voted to authorize a strike, the school district demanded all strike supporting teachers register with the district to enact a policy making it so that teachers won't have access to their students' work uh, that is done during the strike. The administrators also claimed that the strike would contribute to the school-to-prison pipeline, which is off, like, the, the institution of our country creates that system. The idea that you are then blaming the teachers for that is absolutely appalling and and beyond just how how can you blame the teachers for this i mean let me me put it into terms that you might understand so what the teachers are doing is they're using human hostages civilian they're they're using Mm -hmm. uh, Uh. civilian cover with the students and therefore the city will have no choice but to send those students to prison Right, right. So when a teacher comes to the administration and they're like, hey, my class size is too large, it's perfectly reasonable for the administration to be like, why don't we just send little Johnny to prison today? 
you know, I mean, like, yeah, uh, the incredibly dark way to put it, guys. Uh, but yes, I mean, you're not wrong. That is a, that is very much so what they are insinuating. And I mean, while some facilities remain open on the first day of the strike, schools were closed Thursday and the administration refused to budge. Oregon Governor Tika Kotek, who received major major material support from the union in her campaign rejected the possibility of any additional funding until 2025 but we have to keep supporting democrats so they give us funding wait yeah 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 so uh fuck the democrats and they are they are not on the side of labor i mean these and i mean saying that they have to wait till 2025 is literally just a strike breaking tactic Mm -hmm. because they could do it right now but they want to wait because in 2025, presumably, the strike issue is not as pressing and they won't have as much pressure to raise the budget. And they are going to be able to take the very things that the workers want changed, the teachers want changed, which will be significantly worse by that point. The mold will be worse. The mice will be worse. The class sizes will be worse. And they'll be able to be like, oh, actually, it's just not realistic because it's going to cost us $400 million now because we let it slide for so fucking long. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, despite the refusal of the administration to budge, the teachers are united in this fight. In a statement to the members on the eve of the strike, the union bargaining team said, quote, Our cause is just, our proposal is feasible, and our community is overwhelmingly supportive. District management has been unwilling to listen to us at the table, so now they will have the opportunity to hear from all of you on the picket line. Together, we will win. End quote. And I love that energy and the fucking city. They they better they better like fucking do something because uh, obviously these teachers are standing strong for not only themselves but their students, their community, and the future. Absolutely, and Hell you yeah. know I I also love the statement. Our proposals are feasible. Because, like, one, yeah, they obviously are. But, two, that is such a teacher-ass way to phrase that. (laughs) You can tell it's a very active union membership. (laughs) To move to our next story, though, we do have to shout out listener in the Discord, Mason, who gave us this story about uh, journalists at the Daily Herald in Everett, Washington, uh, fighting union busting. I mean, and these workers are fighting for a new contract. These newspaper workers are unionized with CWA News Guild and presented their first wage proposal three months ago. Since that time, management has refused to even provide a counteroffer, only responding by insulting the workers and calling their proposal not serious. Which, I mean, this is just a classic union-busting tactic where the company knows that they can't convince workers not to join the union because, uh, as we'll hear shortly, the union is highly supported. So uh, instead, once bargaining starts, they actually dig in and just refuse to talk. And Mm -hmm. this union-busting tactic is decades old and is explained in great detail in the book Confessions of a Union Buster, which actually the reading group in the Discord is discussing right now it's bullshit it's anti-worker and no workforce should have to put up with it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so like a lot of publications the daily herald is actually extremely fucking old it has been in continuous publication for over a hundred years 
But last September, workers voted unanimously to unionize and have been pushing for contract negotiations since then, while management has been stalling, as we've been talking about. The workers are fighting for fair wages because right now many of them can't even afford to live in the community that they report on. And in response to management's union busting, the workers launched a petition drive to pressure the owners of the Daily Herald, which are Sound Publishing and Black Press, to return to the negotiating table and cease their union busting. The workers said, quote, this derision will not stand. Just like how our newsroom staff expects those in power to be accountable to the public, the company needs to take accountability for the ways its poor wages have negatively affected local journalism. The Herald's reporters, photographers, designers, and readers deserve better. Does Is the Daily Herald uh, like owned by any of these media conglomerates or you know, a, a hedge fund or something like that? Do, do we know anything about that? It's always curious it always i don't know it invites curiosity when you know you hear about these media companies buying up local newspapers and stuff like that it's like where is the money in that you know is is that really the frontier of capital is Mm -hmm. purchasing like local media stations and for and you know obviously like the influence can't be beat but with things like a local paper i guess the incentive is still there just like with you know like local abc affiliates (laughs) being being purchased by um you know, yeah. right, right-wing media companies. Yeah, well, actually, I just looked it here. up. Yeah, it yeah, says, yeah, so if... Uh, go ahead. I was just going to click on... I clicked on uh, Sound Publishing, Inc., their website, and if you go to the page about this, the top headline is, we own 23 independent media <laughs> outlets. And, like, and, and I, I went the other direction, actually, because if you go to their... Uh, uh, and, and, and you Google um, what their parent company is, Black Press is actually Sound Publishing's parent company. So I was like, okay, who's Black Press's parent company? That's a company called Torstar. And who's Torstar's parent company? That's a company called Nordstar Capital LP. And they're the big Amazing. investment firm that owns everything at the, at the tippy top. And somehow there are independent media outlets <laughs> under, <laughs> under this conglomerate. Yeah, it, no, you, it's just you called absurd. it just right, Alex. It's it's abs- like I mean I I you know I don't know if we should have like state run media per se, but it you, clearly like news media should be I don't know de- de- disentangled from the profit motive mm-hmm. uh, at the very at the very least. And yeah, it's 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 funny that it's it's like become this frontier to to somehow make pro. And I mean you know these companies are so wealthy. Who cares if they place a bad bet on a local newspaper or whatever um but yeah it's 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 funny to see this fight happen over like yeah small smallish newspapers one thing i did want to bring up just from my sort of um what it what, what do you call it anecdotal experience um i am seeing like less pushback against non-traditionally unionized workers looking for unions uh sorry that was a really oblique way to put it but like you know i'm i'm i follow a lot of teamsters pages or union thugs pages on facebook you know the normie internet and even those union places you know they would post positive stuff about you know starbucks workers organizing or strip clubs organizing and there would be pushback from you know self you know, from Teamsters or from other union people who are like, you know, these these people, they're not workers, yada, yada, yada. That's not a hard job. I'm seeing that less and less. I think more people, if you care about working people at all, are leaving their their 
antiquated prejudices against service workers behind. I mean, uh, the practical the practical reason for this could be because that's what we all are. Essentially we're Mm -hmm. in this country. We're all almost all service workers to one degree or another, except for like the UAW is actually manufacturing stuff. Uh, But like me, you know, the teamsters uh, service workers, baby, like that's, that's what we do. And there's, there's not really that much different between you and somebody who's providing food service or somebody who's, uh, you know, deli- delivering food instead of delivering boxes or, you know, serving serving customers. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's nice to see. And I, we don't have a really high opinion of journalists in this country. I mean, you know, for, it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's it, for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, but for the I'm reasons hope- that we just pointed out with the conglomerates. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, reporters are sharing in the the rosy glow of the union as well Mm -hmm. yeah because i mean like there's no way that they're actually going to be able to have any level of independence if they can't actually struggle for that in the first place if they're so individualized that they are just like oh if i push back i'm just going to get fired then there's going to be no pushback but when there's a union there is that opportunity to be like no we need to cover this properly i mean Mm -hmm. and not to say that that will definitely happen because i'm sure that there are some unionized news forces that don't necessarily uh get, get that much pushback and power but there i mean we've seen even like at the the uh pittsburgh post gazette where they're still on strike mm-hmm. i believe uh that has been you know that's a pretty right-wing paper but these workers are still pushing back to try to make a difference so i i definitely think it's important for these news outlets to be union and uh it's it's good that they're fighting back and it's also no surprise that the herald is uh union busting like none other and Mm -hmm. i mean they're go ahead i don't know like if i'm if i'm a news consumer who do i trust to have my best interests at heart the people writing the news and researching the news and investigating the news or their bosses who are trying to make money Mm -hmm. it's a it's a pretty simple equation for me is just from the outside well it's like also in this country every five to ten years we have like a new york times bestseller hit the top of the fucking charts and it's some journalist who's like i covered a bunch of atrocities and like covert operations 30 years ago and my editors tried to shut me down and the government tried to shut me down and foreign intelligence services tried to shut me down and now it's all declassified so i published a book and you can read all about it and we're all like wow america used to be so crazy and then it happens again and then it happens again and then it happens again you know so it's like there's there's just a, a long-standing pattern of like journalists who are trying to do work that's meaningful and matters and makes an impact in this country and just being shut down at every turn. And so unions aren't just a way for them to be like, you know, oh, we need wages that can allow us to do good journalism. It's also a way for them to say like, no, you're absolutely not killing the story. You're not editing it to make it look more favorable to, you know, such and such party. You're just going to print the facts about what happened. Yeah, I mean, democracy in the workplace is one of the most important parts of a, of being a union. That's what gets you the wages. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, hopefully they push to get rid of the passive voice. That would be really nice. Oh but the God, refusal yeah. of the bargain and lack of any legal consequences for one of the biggest way is is one of the biggest ways that U.S. labor law is biased towards employers, as we've said many times. And uh, we, we've signed the workers petition and we will be putting the link in the description because anything that we can do to pressure these bosses will help 
help the workers and is very important, as we've kind of outlined here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, we have talked about uh, student workers so many times as the trend of student workers at universities has continued. Uh, I mean, so does the repression. At the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn in Philadelphia, grad student workers have announced that they are revitalizing a long running union drive. Since 2000, grad students have been organizing under the name GetUp, like G-E-T-U-P, or Graduate Employees Together, University of Pennsylvania. The previous drives were held in 2003 and 2017, but were unfortunately unsuccessful. In filing for their election this time on October 6th, they had over 3,000 cards of the 4,500 workers at the university who would be part of this bargaining unit. The administration is also known for its anti-worker activism and anti-union activities, and they filed a challenge, I mean, I guess probably multiple challenges to the petition, but there's one in particular. They have tried to exclude many students from the union, claiming that first and second year grad students don't perform research services, which is probably, which I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, grad workers are seasonal workers due to the summer break, which I mean... <laughs> That's just been proved wrong many times. That's just cartoon Uh, logic. That's just not real. (laughs) Yeah. That's like saying that teachers can't be uh, union because they have a summer break. Obviously, it's just just bullshit, like anti-academia union busting. Yeah. actually, You took a a month of PTO that we gave you, so you're not full-time anymore. (laughs) It's funny to call seasonal workers the workers who work every season except one. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like seasonal right. workers at my building are the workers who work one season. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not, it's 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 yeah, like you said, it's it's okay. Isn't that what teachers do? Yeah, and I mean, even then, I I think that the limitations on on seasonal workers is still like something that is is to be questioned. But additionally, they said that teaching assistants don't share the same interests as students in other programs, such as PhD students. What are you talking about? No, no, yeah, yeah. Um, teaching assistants are only, they're all weebs. They only like anime and Dance Dance Revolution. They're not interested in, in the workplace at all. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, then they also pulled out the classic, grad workers are not employees and therefore not protected under U.S. labor law, which obviously we know based on the 2016 NLRB ruling, they actually are covered under U.S. labor law. And I mean, they, this is, what who was the, I know that we've covered this semi recently with another grad union that uh i don't oh, think yeah, was it was it columbia yeah maybe that maybe it was that one but like the idea that you could just pull out this classic like line like you're gonna send it up to the nlrb and then magically you're gonna get a giant precedent overruled after tens almost probably hundreds of thousands of grad students have unionized since mm-hmm isn't this, I mean, this is the same argument that they use to avoid paying student athletes. That kind they're, of. That they're, yeah, not, yeah, em, that they're not employees. Uh, they're, they're just whatever. Yeah, student athletes. They're doing yeah. it for the love of the game so they can have an extremely small chance to make it as a pro athlete. <laughs> and all that labor, all those injuries that they took, that's just a magical different thing that we don't worry about. I yeah. do kind of agree with them that uh, a, a teacher's assistant it does have different interests than a, than a regular student because that you're kind of like a cop 
if you're a teacher's assistant, <laughs> you're you're grading my paper. You're you're management. You're a cop. Yeah. So uh, no cops in the union, please. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, and well, then I guess they're referring to like the worker, like PhD students, because like lots of PhD students are like teachers in their own right. They do their own their own classes and all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. It's really just saying uh, all of these teachers have different titles, and so they're not teachers yeah and Mm. also like all of that like splitting of titles splitting of departments splitting of like research grads from teaching assistants from whatever from whatever that's all stuff you did those aren't natural phenomena that take place in the university the university administration did that shit on purpose so Mm -hmm. it's so so disingenuous for them to turn around and be like these groups are just naturally divvied up this way it's like we watched (laughs) you do it it's in the school (laughs) charter That's a really good argument, uh, student union. But as you'll see here, I've drawn you as the virgin. Uh, (laughs) Classic, classic. Uh, And I mean, these these obviously false objections attempt to exclude a thousand uh, over a thousand workers from the bargaining unit. I mean, they pulled similar shit earlier in the year when the RAs filed for their union. They were uh, they tried to claim that the RAs were temporary employees. The NLRB threw out that and the and uh, threw out that objection. And ultimately, the RAs won their union 142 to 22, joining the office employees union, the OPEIU. And when resident physicians at the university also tried to union or also tried to unionize earlier this year, the administration sent out messages to, uh, telling the Penn Medicine doctors in training to quote vote no and quote give us a chance. Wow, <laughs> I love I love organizing and then getting two texts in a row from my boss that sound like Act Blue and then an abusive boyfriend in the same fucking five minutes (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and and, you know not surprisingly they won their election 892 to 110 oh man even even after the administration sent out the lyrics to john lennon's imagine (laughs) well how come that didn't work it's also Uh, really funny to argue that like uh ras are temporary employees because (laughs) All employees are temporary employees, except for that that. one guy at Walmart who's a persistent force throughout history and has always been a greeter there since before civilization. (laughs) Like all employment is temporary, man. (laughs) Wow. Just another example of hippies being conservatives. Uh, and they, they joined the SEIU. The uh, get-up workers say that they are fighting for higher wages, protections against harassment and discrimination, comprehensive health care benefits, and stronger rights for international students. And obviously, a, a couple other improvements. The list is generally pretty long with the number of, of bullshit things that happen in these institutions. And also, these demands echo literally every single other grad union organizing drive that we have seen in the past couple years oh my god yeah i mean wages are obvious but like protections against harassment and discrimination particularly a grievance policy uh comprehensive health care and stronger rights for international student workers are like you just don't see an academic organizing drive without those demands it's like a totally endemic problem to the to the uh, university system in this country mm-hmm yeah, and I mean, after the Penn Medicine students unionized, that was the biggest unit to be created in the city in 50 years. But this wow. union uh, 
is going to challenge that when they win. They're going to be the largest, uh, officially formed largest union in Philly in 50 years, which I think is really good. Oh yeah, go birds! Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I I just get every single time I've thought about Philly lately. I just keep thinking about how Benjamin Netanyahu is from Philly. <laughs> well, Cheltenham, I, but yeah. <laughs> uh, every time I think, oh, sorry, continue your thought. No, no, I just keep thinking about that. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, uh, every time I think about Philly, I think of our, our recent live show there with uh, the podcast, Well, There's Your Problem, mm. uh, where 400 of their insane fans uh, yelled at us the whole time we did our show live. <laughs> uh, not, not, in, not in like a heckling way. They were just riffing. You know, just it's such, a, such an enthusiastic crowd in Philly. I love that place. Yeah, I love the enthusiasm. I've been to Philly three times, and every time I've been to Philly, I've seen a fight in the street. And by the <laughs> third time I went to Philly, I was expecting it, and I saw it 10 seconds after I got out of the car. So that's a city that doesn't disappoint. <laughs> I saw yeah. uh, two rats playing around. They could have been fighting, actually, <laughs> uh, on our trip to Philly. That, fighting is what we call playing around in Philly, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hell yeah, so as long as we're um, following... Well, this is kind of a follow-up, kind of a main story, uh, but this is a, a one-day strike at REI, a, an employer that we've been talking about quite a bit on the show for a little bit, um, f- just for the past few months, I think. But on this past Monday, we saw on October 30th, REI workers and customers across the eight unionized stores held a day of action in response to the consumer co-op, which is not a co-op, just to be clear, to, mm. the, consumer co- to the consumer co-op's anti-worker and anti-union actions. Additionally, workers at the Pine Grove and Chicago stores held walkouts and pickets on the day of action. So the company unilaterally announced the elimination of an entire position within their company sales leads, which would eliminate a total of 275 jobs. The RAI union in Berkeley made a statement in response on Twitter saying, quote, our co-op members agree that REI needs to bring back leads. Having experienced staff makes REI a better place to shop and to work, end quote. And in firing these 275 workers, REI simultaneously announced that they would hire 1,300 seasonal workers, clearly shifting towards a model where workers are in a more precarious position. And, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that this isn't something that they paid some consulting firm two and a half million dollars to mm-hmm. be like, actually, if you fire 275 people and you hire 1,300 temps, you can save two and a half million dollars over 10 years. And they're like, great. Thank you so much for the advice. Here's that mm-hmm. money. Right. Well, and it's also easier to, to union bust because mm-hmm. if they're quote unquote seasonal workers, we've actually just gone over how, you know, those are uh, less protected jobs. Yeah. Uh, wow. This is such such great advice. Thanks so much. Uh, hope you have continued success in the transportation department, Mr. Buttigieg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the the classic like uh, like faux progressive bullshit like that. That's REI for you. I mean, well, yeah. And I, just like I'm, <laughs> McKin- if they didn't hire McKinsey, they hired like the Burger King to McKinsey's McDonald's. <laughs> Yeah, and I just remember the, there was like a video of a customer, uh, you know, standing in support of the workers at REI, holding a, so, uh, a sign that said "FOOP," uh, mm-hmm. which which I think is a, a pretty pretty honest way to portray what REI is. Yeah, well, and, and in addition to yeah. just being like an uh, obvious and baseline. Um, 
evident for everybody to see financial uh, move. It's also totally illegal to do this uh, because they made no attempt to consult the union before announcing this change. So we heard from Graham Gale, who is a Soho bike, who is a bike mechanic at REI Soho and union member who said, quote, REI has an obligation not only to its workers, but to the law. Its decision to gut stores and lay off some of our most experienced staff is not only devastating, but a violation of our labor rights. We are the ones who have made REI as successful as it is, and it is time we are treated with the respect we deserve. Enough is enough, and we are standing together to call on REI to meet us at the bargaining table, as is our federally protected right. And I think they're, end quote, and I think they're totally, absolutely right to say this, because like, you can make all the appeals you want about like how this is, you know, obvious and and horrible and evil. And that's true. And you'll get community support. But when they break the law, like that is something that you can carry with you always. Like even if you can't get like a court injunction right now, you can hold that on the books. And just as Graham was, you know, pointing to forever and ever, you can say like, look, they violated this. They just knowingly mm-hmm. broke the law in this situation and use that as as precedent for all of your labor negotiations going forward. And just yeah, to be absolutely. clear, how they illegally, how they you know broke the law is because they did this unilaterally. Mm-hmm. They changed working conditions at stores that are in status quo. That it, and it's just a, a a cut and dry, very illegal thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this these actions show once again that consumer co ops are no different than other businesses like Starbucks when it comes to how they feel about workers and their rights. Yeah, anytime you see a co op or worker owned or any of those uh, kind of legally gray area phrases that can mean a couple of different things. Uh, it's worth being suspicious. <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah, it's, you have to like look for the second layer of information mm-hmm. on those for sure. Um, to like broadly speak about you know the the labor movement and uh, perceptions among the public. Like I don't know, you know, we're such a consumer consumer heavy society. You know, that's how we like think about a lot of these things is where a lot of like our politics happen. Um, and I think like, it's pretty obvious that the average consumer, the average person does not think that eliminating 275 permanent jobs from, you know, senior employees and replacing them with 1300 seasonal employees is going to, uh, improve their consumer experience at all. I mean, we're we already see pushback with, the introduction of self-checkout, like even the boomers are raging against self-checkout and the elimination mm-hmm. of jobs and and uh, in, in department stores. And I mean, anybody who's been alive longer than 20 years has witnessed the degradation of, you know, and this isn't the biggest deal in the world, but the degradation of like the customer experience, uh, the experience of actually being able to go into a place and get help and not just have everything shunted off to an app or a website that you have to look up on your own while you're browsing the store or whatever. So I think, um, what was it, Graham? Uh, yeah, bringing up that laying off some of the most experienced staff, like that's going to send shockwaves down the line for every consumer who wants to shop at REI. And I mean, I realize, like you said, a lot of people are already just like kind of um, whatever passively on the side of of workers. But I think this can like really help to shed light on what this what the same thing with the teachers, you know, with if these employees are happy and secure, they're going to like be nicer to you. <laughs> they're, they're going they're you know, if they have a, a respect and this is speaking from somebody who's part of a union. 
like having that union behind me enables me to have a different sort of consumer experience. I have more skin in the game. I have a desire, you know, I have, I have a route because of my seniority, because of the union, uh, the, uh, because of our contract, I have a route and those are my customers. Those are the people I see every day. The union enables me to have a relationship with those people on sort of like a, um, a mutually beneficial uh, scale. And so I, I really think that this is a, a piece of this labor fight that could be pretty effective propaganda for the public. Yeah, and I mean, tying it to the teachers is one thing. We can also tie it back to the ticket offices with just Mm -hmm. like, let old people talk to someone. Yeah. Yeah. Let people talk to people. Well, and also like, I have a member of my family who is an extremely avid REI customer. And one thing about REI customers is like, they love that place. They love to go in there and like spend (laughs) two fucking hours in the REI looking at mountain bikes and rock climbing equipment and farting around and trying stuff out. And if you degrade that customer experience for them, they're going to get really pissed off really (laughs) fast because the only way to provide that kind of service is to have committed long-term employees who know a lot about the products and a lot about their regular customers. And additionally, that sort of thing leads to customer entitlement sort of activities, which leads to honestly violent customer interactions. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's the goal. I mean, that, that really is the goal. Like REI, they know when they did this, when they drafted this plan, whoever drafted it for them probably even told them about this. There's going to be fallout. There's going to be fallout with, with, um, you know, a denigration of service and customers being pissed off. But don't worry, they're never going to be able to talk to you. They're only going to be able to yell at the 1300 seasonal employees that you're going to fire in a month anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, true, truly like a, a, a- a careless in like a a very purposeful kind of way sort of move um and we do still have two more stories before we wrap the episode but we are going to talk about you know a classic thing that's been happening through the these more recent stages of the ongoing covid pandemic the return to office policy and i mean the Obviously, the U.S. ruling class has declared the ongoing pandemic as over, but we've seen in that wake many businesses aggressively forcing workers to uh, whose jobs actually can not only more easily be performed remotely, but also more more uh, cheaply be performed remotely, return to the office. And I mean... These companies are basically loath to do any sort of uh, allowing workers that sort of freedom so that they can just continue their constant surveillance and management discipline that, you know, the remote work would have, you know, actually kind of alleviated a little bit. Managers just feel like they need to justify their largely unnecessary jobs by Mm -hmm. forcing workers back to work in person so that they can demonstrate how much their supervision supposedly increases productivity. Obviously that that, uh, this is an argument that we hear all the fucking time with the return to office nonsense. And it's one of the ones like I get that, like they're willing to pay these exorbitant, like, you know, office rental and, or like, you know, property taxes or, or, or whatever to make sure that they have direct control over their workers. 
as a CEO or as like a owner or whatever. I get that that's their perspective, but for the from the manager's perspective, like how hard is it for you to just be to go to your superior and be like, "I sent a thousand emails today. I made up hundreds of phone calls. Why do you have to fucking walk around tapping people on the shoulder, startling them and being like, "Could you step into my office for a minute? I have something that I'm not going to tell you what it is that I need to talk to you about in 45 minutes." So just panic until then would be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's honestly it's it's kind of an abusive situation. I mean, not to surprise coming from management, but but you know, this is also why, you know, workers should have control of the shop floor. But to 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 get to the actual story, this week hundreds of tech workers organized with the New York Times Tech Guild held a walkout on Monday, October 30th to protest attempts of the paper to force workers back to the office without negotiating with the union. Again, unilateral decisions from the company against the wishes of the workers. The workers and uh, the workers voted overwhelmingly last year to unionize, and I mean. As and and so making these unilateral changes is just a violation of the NLRA, as we've mm-hmm. pointed out uh, now a couple times in this episode. So the NLRB, the board, uh, has already ruled against attempts by the company to impose a strict RTO policy without negotiating, and saying that it is illegal and will result in legal action if not curbed, as reported by Bloomberg. What do you mean if not curbed? What, why is that clause in there at all? Why, why can't you take legal action the first time they break the law like you do with mm-hmm. everybody else? Yep. Yeah. I mean, we talk about that all the time, how there's just a separate standard for businesses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is, it shows you who has power in this country, that it's just one side gets to do whatever they want, and then the other side has to spend like unlimited amounts of energy and time trying to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And undermining the claim from management that the RTO policy is about creating a, quote, collaborative environment, end quote. The journalists from the New York Times have won protections for hybrid work in their most recent contract. And shockingly, the New York Times is still able to publish the same capitalist propaganda that they've always been able to put out without any disruption. Wow, you're telling me that journalists for the New York Times are able able to write why we should nuke the shit out of Iran from their couch. They don't have to write that at a weird little desk in a high rise. <laughs> That's shocking to me. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so so much of this like return to work stuff, it just feels like you're telling on yourself that you don't have any friends. like that's i don't know that's honestly like that's the most sympathetic argument in my mind to me about returning to work is that i have no friends or family and uh my my co-workers are the only people that will let me annoy them in person yeah well i mean have you ever met any boss you've ever had (laughs) and and thought to yourself like i cannot imagine that there's a single person in the world that puts up with this guy because that's about 99 percent of people who have ever been in charge of me (laughs) i'm lucky because yeah at this bill i've worked at three different ups buildings and this one is great because I, i you know i don't know if the ratio is different but it really does seem like our managers are uh, understaffed for sure. So I almost literally never have to hear from them. Uh, it's it's pretty fantastic. And anyway, like my job is outside. I'm moving around. Mm-hmm. It, it like, I, I, I've, even though it is a, what I do is a different job than writing or something like that, 
I the my supervision is getting a, a text message through my dyad that tells me to drink water. Or like my supervision <laughs> is like, oh, do you know what happened to this package? Oh, that's that's what happened to it. Cool. I'm assuming in a normal office workplace, that still happens over text message, over mm-hmm. Slack or whatever. Your manager isn't popping in. Your manager, I mean, you know, again, I might be getting over my skis because I realize a lot of managers can be really annoying and micromanaging. Uh, but I'm imagining with like, you know, this like trim the fat, streamline, rate of profit declining. They're not high. They don't have a fleet of managers mm-hmm. to like interface with every single employee throughout the day. It really seems pretty redundant to not just, yeah, do everything on Slack or Zoom or whatever. Yeah. Well, and the management pushing for these, you know, return to offices as well, return to office policies as well, is because uh, so much of their job is automated away by these like surveillance apps that we talked mm-hmm. about on the last episode, the drinky bird thing, where workers <laughs> are literally having things tap a key to keep them from going idle so that they can use the bathroom. Uh, that is basically the job of a manager manager in these office situations most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I mean, since unionizing over a year ago, the New York Times has continually dragged its feet in an attempt to break the union through bad faith bargaining, a standard practice with basically any company, or I should say the vast majority of companies. Uh, Managers have also refused to participate in open bargaining, only agreeing to sessions if the union members cannot observe the process, which... What do you mean? They they want like a, a secret bargaining. They want the the old UAW administration caucus is what mm. they want. Mm. They they want everything behind closed doors. No no public anything. They want to be able to to strike a deal and have that that business union sh- business union kind of relationship, which is thankfully dying out in this country. Yeah and. Kathy Zhang, uh, head of the Tech Guild, spoke with Bloomberg and asked the obvious question, quote, why would this company make such a fuss about their own employees watching negotiations silently on Zoom unless the company has something to hide, end quote. And then she continued saying, quote, the company continues to act like we don't exist. We're hoping that when we show how much solidarity we have and how much members are feeling very strong against management's actions, that they will see that we are serious, end quote. And basically exactly what we were just alluding to is that the the company wants to deny that the workers are the union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, it would be great for them to put a, a wedge or a divide between union leadership and the rank and file. Um, I, I, I do think that like having visible union negotiations uh, would be a fairly radicalizing process for a lot of people who are even already like, you know, self-aware working class people. Mm-hmm. It would just be you would just see your boss like arguing to pay you less at every turn or arguing to cut your hours or or your uh, your rights or, or you know, the the thing, your protections. And they they don't. They don't they don't want that. They don't want to be like recorded uh, <laughs> driving down wages or anything like that. Um, but I, I don't, when, when our, our union, when we were negotiating, we, we did have like private negotiations between the Teamsters and UPS. Um, and there can be positive reasons for that, uh, because you don't want preemptive offers to be treated 
as the only goal that you'll mm-hmm. go. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in terms of union negotiating, you do have to like work down from somewhere. You have to meet in the meet somewhere between the two demands. And if there's people who don't like your leadership, they're going to use those compromises against the union leadership to show that they gave into the company or whatever. So I do respect private negotiations from if the union, if that's something that the union wants, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it's pretty obvious that management pushing against this is doing so for their own reasons. Yeah. And I mean, like I've actually sat at the bargaining table before and to watch those ghouls sit there and try to say that you aren't worth whatever you know you're worth or that they definitely need to find a way to surveil you or create some sort of system that makes your life a living hell. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's incredibly radicalizing. I'm sitting here on a, a labor, a, a very radical labor podcast partially because mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, like, regardless of how anybody views the current state of COVID, which feels weird to say because COVID is still fucking going on, that's just the facts, but regardless, I know a lot of people don't feel that way, so regardless of that, it's still obvious that these aggressive return-to-office policies are more about union-busting than about any other topic, and we saw this illustrated most obviously when Grindr responded to its workers unionizing with a return-to-office policy that they knew most workers could not accept, uh, in particular having them report to the nearest office, which was sometimes thousands of miles away from their home, Um, and this allows the policy to be used as a stealth layoff, where they don't actually have to declare that they're laying off employees, Mm. they can just say they're enacting a new policy aimed at driving out pro-union workers. These attacks are aimed at the whole labor movement, and tr- they these companies will simply try to use anything they can to discourage solidarity or, or throw logistical wrenches in the works. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's just a, a, a new way to use a classic tactic. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we do want to uh, have one positive story here at the end, and Actually, for the first time in many, many weeks, we're not talking about the UAW. We might get some more updates on on next week's episode as the things as things progress with those negotiations. But we're actually going to be talking about well, Disney. We did, ju- we did just do a, an almost two hour long episode on Wednesday where all we talked about was the UAW. So go yeah, listen to it, that if you have questions. It's true that is not behind the paywall. So so I mean we. Definitely encourage people to become patrons, but that one is there for everyone. So, I mean, at 2023 has been a, a big year for the labor movement generally, as we kind of were just saying, we had to take two hours to talk about the UAW strike, but also specifically in film in the film and TV industry. The big story has been uh, strikes by first the WGA and then by SAG-AFTRA, the latter of which is actually still ongoing, but also this has been a big year for animators and effects artists as well. We had previously discussed how VFX workers at Marvel and Disney Studios had won their election to join IATSE for the first time earlier this year, and this week, more Disney workers joined them. On Tuesday, November 2nd, animators at the Walt Disney Animation Studios voted 63 to 5, a 93% in favor of unionization vote to join the Animation Guild, IATSE Local 839. I've said it a few times on the show, but when we started doing this, you would see these votes for like a strike authorization or to join a union or to form a union or whatever. And it was like, 
you know, 73% would be like a really good win, like a really strong win in the right direction. And for the last couple of months, almost every vote of every kind we've seen on this show has been like 85% plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ours was 97%. Yeah. Uh, it was it was also 97% back in, uh, man, no, oh, just yeah. the recent contract. Uh, oh, yeah. That would have been... 18? Uh, yeah, 2018. Um, yeah, which is very cool. I, I I can't help but, like, thinking about this in terms of public perception, you know, from, a from like, a traditional union working state. Like, people like the UPS guy. People respect the UPS gal. Uh, they bring them good stuff and all that. There's a lot more disdain for like Disney workers or Marvel workers or so I, I I like thinking about these in terms of public perception or like uh solid you know potential solidarity and I mean one thing everybody can agree on is movies kind of suck now <laughs> or they're they're trending in that direction that mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of them are overly saturated with visual effects or in most cases saturated with visual effects that have been rushed that have been squashed out of these workers and there's you know the the results of that are on screen and not only that but like with ai coming in not as like a threat to the qual the what do you call it not as a threat to like competition with a worker, but just as a threat of something that's going to be adopted by corporations, no matter what, no matter how good of quality it is, no matter whether Mm -hmm. it's comparable to human activity, it's going to be uh, adopted as soon as it becomes feasible to replace your workers with it. These workers are the only people who can stop it. They're they're like, like the government's not going to do anything about it, obviously, uh, uh, unless these workers can petition, the government can organize and then have an effect within, you know, traditional politics. But if your union, if if your visual effects artists unionize, then they just they can't do AI. Mm-hmm. They 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 can't do these substandard. Um, I don't remember what the the term for it is, but like the the crush weeks or whatever, like the um, video game developers use, where it's oh, like yeah, oh, crunch. for the crunch, yeah, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to do that, and you're going to get better you're going to get better results from this media in that case. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just like, uh, there's an old like popular Tumblr post that goes around once in a while where it's like, remember Treasure Planet and how good that fucking movie looked? And then remember the 15 years of absolute fucking garbage 3D rendered animation that we got after that? That's because that was a less unionized industry and it was mm-hmm. cheaper to send a bunch more of the work over there so you could make a bigger uh, profit on a shittier product and it's like if we have this kind of labor representation then maybe one day the united states will actually produce an animated feature that looks half as fucking good as what ralph bakshi was doing nearly by himself 50 years ago yeah it all it always comes back to me as like you know working it doesn't have to be a passion it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. your your lust for life or whatever but i think intrinsically a worker has more at stake and has more invested in the company and has their interests aligned with the people who consume that stuff or the people who um, appreciate that stuff. It's, I mean, it's, this is somebody who's in the industry, who's producing stuff. They're not 
just making decisions at a corporate room on how to maximize profit or whatever. They're actually creating this stuff and giving those people more power is, I think, always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that when uh, you're basically letting algorithms or spreadsheets decide what a movie is going to be, like suddenly you're doing calculations as to like, oh, this line is going to connect with people based on our studies, uh, you know, 78 <laughs> percent mm-hmm. like that sort of thing is going to just take the actual life out of any of the art in its own right. Just oh, destroying that, the films. That's how you end up with Big Bang Theory and two and a half men and every other fucking chuck lore production from the last 30 fucking years yeah yeah well and and just to just to go back to the story when the union drive launched back in march it uh, initially asked disney to voluntarily recognize but i mean obviously disney declined that you know but disney then attempted to argue that the production supervisors and managers shouldn't be part of the bargaining unit and should be counted as management despite the fact that workers uh, mm-hmm. that these workers actually work on the animation alongside other animators and i mean obviously since uh that was thrown out that they didn't also have hiring and firing power mm-hmm. because uh you know, I, this is like a that classic case of like putting the word manager next to something in order to like desalary these workers, or I mean, no, in order to salary these workers and pay them less, and and like it's just a a a way of a sleight of hand of like what how these people are actually workers, and so when when you're thinking about who is like especially when you're in these kind of more complicated labor situations and you know you're forming a union you should really analyze who really is a manager with hiring and firing and disciplinary power Mm -hmm. versus who is a manager who's making sure the project is happening yeah who's somebody who's been told to do all of the work that a manager nominally would do for like a 50 cent an hour raise and who Mm -hmm. has no actual say over how the business is run yeah yeah and, uh, I mean, workers in similar positions had previously already won protections at Nickelodeon, Titmouse, and 20th te- Television Animation. So Disney's attempt to split up the bargaining unit unit obviously failed. And, I mean, like, this is just another example of how companies, despite precedent being set at other places, will still continue to try to push these bullshit lines, similar to that university earlier trying to say that grad workers were just not workers, mm-hmm. you know. There's precedent for it. They don't care. They're going to try to to use it as a way to 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 draw out. It do as Alex said earlier, lawfare basically against mm-hmm. the unions. And so, I mean, this did contribute in that way to a seven month delay before the election. So in mm. that way, Disney got what they wanted. They knew it yeah. would fail, but they got their their seven month delay to try to bust the union. Although the union did still come into existence with a ninety three percent vote in favor. So these animators will now be able to win the same job protections that so many other production workers in film and TV have long had, such as strong benefits, overtime protections, a grievance procedure, and better wages. So hell yeah, congratulations to these Disney animation workers joining the Animation Guild. Absolutely. And uh, so as for, you know, we're talking about the visual things. Is this a good transition to the meme <laughs> review? How do we do, how do we do this? Movie? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about funny pictures. Let's animate some memes. So <laughs> uh, the first one we have here is a tweet from PDX Teachers, which is the uh, Portland Teachers Union. And uh, it's just a photo of a skeleton 
in a like a Halloween decoration skeleton in a poncho sitting in a lawn chair with a sign that is also covered in plastic that says on strike for safe schools. And it just says, waiting for PPS to bargain in good faith, Portland Public Schools. And they said, we're ready when you are, great public schools for all. And I love this because the (laughs) idea of putting a skeleton in a chair and just making a joke about how long you've been waiting is one of Mm -hmm. the oldest internet jokes around. And it's great to see it reused. Uh, Just perennial favorite of mine. It's classic and the execution is flawless here. <laughs> yeah, and I also just love when unions put out a good meme. It's just yeah. it's very important. It's uh unions have been upping their meme game lately. Absolutely. I like the the skeleton wearing a poncho cuz I look at that and I'm like he's just like me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh yeah, and then our next one actually uh I'm also going to cover this one cuz I hate John Fetterman so much. I actually used to wait on this guy at the Starbucks in the waterfront in Pittsburgh and he's oh, a bad shit. fucking customer. Yeah. Oh shit. He eats those fucked up little tomato paninis that Starbucks sells that probably <laughs> are like 30% sawdust. And he's a real asshole when it's not uh ready for him fast enough. Uh, that was when he was mayor of Braddock. I don't even know. He's been lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. And now he's a senator, so he's probably even worse. But this is just a photo of him, and it says, New Fetterman hoodie going crazy. And then on his hoodie, it says, The Working Man's Genocide Co-Conspirator, which is, you know, he has been working so hard to convince us all that we need to go to bat for Israel like crazy. And I just, I called it in the air so fucking long ago, you guys. He's the worst fucking politician. Don't don't look at his cargo shorts and think he's literally me (laughs) look at his policies and think he's literally joe biden yeah i mean like he also one of his uh staff like assaulted some guy who was asking him if like he would support a ceasefire Mm -hmm. in any circumstances i mean like this guy is is deeply complicit in the genocide against Palestinians. Yeah, even before this uh, this conflict popped off the way it has recently, he was asked last year what he thought about Isra- Israeli-Palestine relations, and he said something to the effect of, I'm going to forge my own path towards supporting Israel, which was one of the most politics-brained sentences I've ever heard in my fucking life. Yeah, I, I love that, where it was like, yeah, his uh, staff was, like, putting a, a reporter in a headlock behind mm-hmm. him, and he's all, and then he's, like, holding a veggie platter in front of it, and like, hey, remember this? Yeah, Mental remember? Health Awareness Week, or whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, in a in a similar thing, we actually have a, a tweet from Ugopnik, who is a, a great YouTube producer and on the uh, the D program, which mm-hmm. is a, another good podcast, uh, who has this uh, this tweet here that says, I condemn your mom for birthing a guy who would ask me if I condemn Hamas, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think that his his wit is just uh, is just very on point so often. <laughs> hell yeah and uh this next one is really getting to me because i hadn't seen it yet actually so this is um a tweet from usp at usps veteran and it says sean fain organizing tesla in california and then they've taken a photo of sean fain and given him like tech bro glasses <laughs> and like long semi graying hair and stuck him in like a a, a weird like quasi what do they call this like athleisure 
kind of uh, UAW branded hoodie thing. Yeah, it's it's what it's like tech tech sport gear. What is, I can't remember the name of it. Like tech yeah. pants, you know, that have like a flimsy zipper pocket that you can't even get your hand into. It's it's like that shit. Yeah, yeah for carrying I, around your BlackBerry, even though you own a company that produces smartphones. <laughs> And and I mean you're really underselling the hair because it's like that just slightly <laughs> slightly shaggy like slightly long like California I'm actually very cool because I don't have the classic short haircut kind of guy mm-hmm. uh, and yeah he, no, he looks like a senior project developer for like a, a tech company or something that's the hair that I'm getting or he looks like um a tenured uh, computer science professor <laughs> and I don't know if uh. He has pierced ears, but I do see that in his left <laughs> earlobe there is a little like piercing without like an actual earring in. How very nineteen nineties. Yeah. So yeah, very, very uh California tech rose. So yeah, also uh, you know, yeah, with this, the- he looks like he looks like he wears Google Glass while surfing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's, kind of That's what he right. Looks like. And uh, you know, so 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 we're hoping that the uh, the Tesla drive goes pretty quickly, and uh, that uh, is probably going to happen. At least I it, think so. It is kind of funny that there's these uh, stereotypes about California people as well, because uh, having never been to California, I still know just from the ones who have returned that the people with the worst, most stereotypical California attitudes and accents and and like visual appearance are all from the Midwest. sounds about right (laughs) and then we've got this last one which is if you've ever seen a turtle eat fruit they get so fucking like overjoyed and happy and this is like really the like the action shot right as this turtle is about to take a big bite into a raspberry eyes so wide so much joy staring at this raspberry the turtle is labeled me and the raspberry is labeled news of union victories and Mm -hmm. that that is that is our show that's it yeah that's why we do the show (laughs) absolutely a very tasty little raspberry yeah yeah all right well alex thank you so much for joining us today it was really great to have you on to help us report the news yeah absolutely thanks for having me on love the work you guys are doing yeah we would tell the listeners uh how to find you in your your what work you work on Yeah, so uh, we do Minion Death Cult. We do it three times a week, one free episode, uh, two for patrons, and one of those is a live stream we do every Saturday with listeners. Uh, We cover labor and politics, uh, but we don't cover it. uh, We don't cover the New York Times. We don't cover uh, the Washington (laughs) Post. Uh, We cover your Mima's genocidal Facebook comment section. Uh, We try to take a look at, you know, the day's news or... uh, politics how politics are being processed uh by average regular people by which i mean psychopaths uh (laughs) and so we you know get get a lot of entertainment out of looking at these people's politics but we also kind of use them to juxtapose our own politics our own leftist working class uh anti-racist uh politics and um i don't know have some fun while doing it it can be a can be dark subject matter at times, but we usually have some fun with it. Uh, and yeah, thanks again for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Y'all do a great job. It's a great show. And join the Minion Death Commandos Facebook group if you're not already in there. Please do. Oh, yeah, nice. All right. Well, and I mean, if you'd like to support our show, you can do that at patreon.com slash work stoppage. We appreciate that as an entirely listener supported show. 
We also have a bunch of bonus content in there. Jump in the Discord and come hang out with us for, you know, also seeing a bunch of other news. Uh, write us a review somewhere. Follow us in all the places. The links are at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to the Red Game Table. Listen to Minion Death Cult. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity. Solidarity.